Today we're back in Romans 12. So please, turn your Bibles to Romans 12. Let's just read these two first verses again. Okay, Romans 12.1. Now remember, I've done three messages on this. Let them rush back to us right now. I appeal to you therefore. So Paul's appeal to be living sacrifices is not an empty appeal. He's building it on a rock bed solid foundation of truth, the mercies of God, the sum of the first 11 chapters. That's his appeal. And if he's going to appeal to you, it means he wants you thinking this way. He wants your mind set on these realities. Justification. I mean, set your mind on that. Think about that. As Look, when you guys go out there and you go to minister to this world, whether you're ministering to some little old lady, to your next door neighbor, whether you're trying to raise your family in a godly way, if you're out there on the streets and you're preaching to people, however it is, whatever it looks like in your life, Paul is making an appeal. When you're going to be a living sacrifice, and you remember what living sacrifice is. One of my messages, I was just emphasizing the, the weightiness of sacrifice. In the Scriptures, sacrifice is not a, just an empty, trivial word. Sacrifice is the word used to describe what Christ did when He gave Himself and the Father spilled His soul. It's a weighty word. Sacrifice in the Old Testament to the Old Testament saint meant giving their best of their herds and their flocks. It was very costly business. Sacrifice. Paul appeals to these mercies to live out just this kind of life. Let those mercies... Fill your life with the truths and the realities of the Gospel. What do you have? Reconciliation. I now walk under the smile of God. He's not against me. He's for me. All things are working out in my life for my good. To those who love God. You love God. This is a reality. Justification. Not based on my own merits. Am I accepted by God, but fully on what Christ accomplished at the cross. Let your mind go there. And now God is working in you through that Spirit powerfully. You're dead to sin. He's changed you from the inside. Regeneration. You've risen to newness of life. Let these things permeate your thinking. Reconciled to God. You're no longer an enemy of His. God's smile is over your head. Let these things ring true. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Let that be there. When people persecute you, when things are difficult, when, when there's opportunity to give massively of yourself, just in light of all that God has given you, be these channels through which you just give and you give and you give and you give. That's what living sacrifice is. It is living, dying. Dying to self. And you must die if you would be a follower of Christ. Sacrifice. All of it on the altar. Now here's the thing. We're going to move into this second verse today. All of that about sacrifice, that's your spiritual worship. You see, this has to do with your worshiping of God. This has to do with your serving of God. This, this is what God calls you to do. This is it. Should all of your life be worship? Absolutely. Because what at the, at the foundational level, what is worship? It is you expressing the worth of God. Is that not it? When you worship God, you can almost worth-ship. That's where that word comes from. Worth. When you worship, it means you are expressing to God. You are showing forth His 
value, His worth. This is what you are called to do. Okay, you jump into verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now brethren, I started looking at this second text. And I'll tell you the question that came up in my mind. Is verse 2 connected to verse 1? Or is it a new thought altogether? Well, and if they are connected, how are they connected? Well, one thing, like if Brother John's back there and he's got his King James Bible, you know what he sees at the beginning of verse 2? He sees the word and. Now, why in the world the ESV left that out? I think it is very dangerous to leave conjunctions that are in the original out of the English translation. I don't know why they would do that. Prepositions tell us lots. Well, not, not just prepositions, conjunctions rather. The word and is there. The word and is at the beginning of verse 2. Obviously, and means conjunctions. They, they connect us. So obviously there's a connection. But how is there a connection? And I began looking at it. I began pondering this. Is the connection this? Is Paul basically saying, okay, I'm going to give them three steps to the Christian life. Be a living sacrifice. That's found in verse 1. And then we move to verse 2, and he's going to give us two more steps. The second step and the third step, which are don't be conformed to the world, but rather be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Is that it? Is it just three steps to the Christian life? Or is verse 2 rather an explanation of verse 1? Might it rather be that in verse 1 we get this great symbolic picture of presenting ourselves as living sacrifices. Paul gives us a, a picture whereby we can imagine ourselves being lifted up on this altar and consumed in this holy fire and can present himself to God as a living sacrifice. But, if you look carefully, you can actually see how Paul makes the connection between living sacrifice and the will of God. Notice the word acceptable. You guys see it? It is the only major word other than articles, preposition, conjunctions. It's the only major word that shows up in both verses. Throws great light on these two verses. It's the common strand. Pulls both of these together. Now, before I go further, I want to give you guys a little bit of a word study on the term acceptable. Okay, here I am. I'm at home. When I go out of my bedroom to go downstairs, I have to go by Joshua's bedroom. I look in there. This is pretty typical. Tools, skateboards, games, toys, stuff, everywhere. All over the bed, all over the floor, piles of stuff. If I go by there and I say, Joshua, hey buddy, I need you to come clean your bedroom. Okay. As is typical with boys, three minutes later, okay dad, I'm done. And I go in there, and I do see more of the floor, but it looks like somebody shoved everything in the closet with a plunger. Stuff is just squeezing out from under the bed. The bed's made, but it's not really up to military specification. If I say to him, well, it's acceptable. What have I said? And folks... If your wife or your mother cooks a meal, asks how it is, and you say, it's acceptable, she's going to smile at you and say, oh, thank you, honey, for such a wonderful compliment. Probably not. But look, now you guys need to really catch this. 
This is not the meaning of this word used here. The word used here is a word that is often translated pleasing or well-pleasing. That's the idea. If you live back in the Roman world and use this word to describe the meal that your wife just cooked, she would feel greatly complimented. The word is closely related to that word Jesus uses when He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Okay, here's the thing. Paul uses the term acceptable or well-pleasing in both verse 1 and in verse 2. Make sure you see the connection here. There's Look, there's only one acceptable life with God. There's only one. In verse 1, Paul calls it living sacrifice. In verse 2, it's the will of God. But there's only one acceptable life. Now, no matter what title you put on it, you can call it a number of different things, which he calls it two different things here. But folks, there's one life that's well-pleasing. That life that's well-pleasing is a life that focuses on doing the will of God. And that is living sacrifice. That's the heart of the matter. Now, how do we live such a life? Paul shows us the way. What is that way? He gives it to us in the negative and in the positive. What is that way? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, if this is the heart of the matter, if this is what the Christian life revolves around, it can't get any more important than you guys understand how this works out. How do we accomplish this? Paul tells us, don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It's very likely it's going to take two more messages. One dealing with the first part. One dealing with the second part of this. Before we're even going to get out of verse 2. But listen, what I want to do today is help you see the overall picture here. Now think with me. Paul's giving us instructions as to how to live our Christian life. Paul is a realist. He knows how things really are. Paul gives us instruction to live our lives the way we need to live our lives. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, it means this. Think practically with me about two aspects of your life. One, just think about all the situations that you encounter in your life. What do I mean by that? How often are you guys confronted by situations in your life that God does not directly deal with in His Word? How often? I mean, don't you guys repeatedly find yourselves saying, I don't know what to do here. God doesn't give a specific word here. God doesn't give me specific direction here. God doesn't tell me exact. Look, if I go into H-E-B... Yeah, I can say, okay, well, yeah, okay, there, there is a commandment. I, I shouldn't steal this loaf of bread. But how about all, how many decisions do you make when you go to into HEB? How many? Like about 10,000, right? I mean, you have to decide all sorts of things. You guys are making decisions all the time. If you're going to be a living sacrifice, you need to be cued in to God's will on all 10,000 of those things. Not just, I shouldn't steal a loaf of bread. I mean, there's a person standing in your way. Well, do I just plow through them? Or do I walk, do I walk to the right? Do I walk to the left? How close do I walk to them? Where do I, where do I plant my feet? I mean, how... You know, should I sing while I'm here? Should I not sing? Am I going to disturb somebody else? What do I say to that guy that just walked by and he used profanity? And here I got my child with me. How do I deal with that? And now here I am coming to the, to the checkout and, you know, there's magazines there and there's pictures. Okay, where do I put my eyes? How, what do I do? What do I say to the lady there? What word should I... I mean, the fact is, we are confronted with decisions all the time. You guys know that God doesn't hardly give us very distinct and exact instruction 
on every single aspect of our life. He just doesn't do that. He doesn't give us an express indication about what His will is. And I can remember, still remember a message I listened to a long time ago. Al Martin, he went to his refrigerator at night. He got up and he laid his hand on the handle and suddenly he was frozen. Should I get milk or shouldn't I get milk? I mean, seriously, he all of a sudden was frozen. Is this really God's will? Christ living in me, is this what Christ wants? Should I get the milk or should... You see, there are all sorts of decisions. Well, And the second factor is this. Folks, there you are in HEB again. You're making your 10,000 decisions that God has not given you specific indicators about. But then, on the other hand, all those 10,000 things that you're doing, it's not even like it's feasible for you to sit there and think and logically deduce how you're going to do every one of the 10,000 things. I mean, how much of what we do in our life is just spontaneous? I mean, right now I'm speaking to you guys. Am I thinking very carefully about every single word I'm using? If I, if folks, you get there, you're just dysfunctional. You shut down. We're not called to live that way. Now, obviously, there are things we have to mull over. We really have to ponder. We have to seek God's will in. We have, but look, Paul knows in a reality, we are making decisions all the time that God doesn't directly deal with. And he knows that how much of our life, a huge percentage of it, we are just spontaneously living. And we don't think and we don't meticulously study and try to figure out every single bit of God's will about every word we do and every action, all the minutia of life. And so how is it that you're going to be a living sacrifice? How is it that you're going to do God's will in all of that, in the very fullness of life? Guess what? Paul does not say, okay, what you need is this. You guys, you guys ever seen the old uh, Puritan Baxter? He's got this book about that thick called The Christian Directory. And you go in there, it's like he's giving you instruction for every little aspect of life. Well, I'll tell you what, that's not what you need. And Paul doesn't say, okay, what we really need to do is we need to append the Bible with something the size of an encyclopedia to go through and meticulously identify how we need to live every aspect of our life. That isn't what he does. Not at all. You know what he does? He basically boils it down to this. If you want to have God's will flowing through and out of your life in every possible scenario, and in all of your spontaneous living, in all your actions, in all your words, then hear well his instruction. Do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Okay. Now you got to be ready for this. I want you guys to understand. And I think sometimes we pass over things in the New Testament that we don't really have figured out. And I'm not saying I have it totally figured out. There, there are balances in the New Testament. We have to be aware of those things. We have to seek to walk the middle line. Paul does not believe that what you need to live your Christian life... I follow. Listen to my words carefully here. He does not believe that what you need is an endless set of external rules and regulations and laws. Now hear me very carefully here. When it comes to living the Christian life, Paul does not advocate that we endlessly study the Ten Commandments. And there are Reformed churches where that is happening all the time. And yet, when you come to the New Testament, show me one place where the Ten Commandments are studied and repeatedly laid open and examined, it does not happen. 
And in fact, any of the references to those commandments is typically a slight reference to them and a moving away to vaster, broader Christian principle. I guarantee you, you search your New Testaments out, you will never see Paul saying, okay, Gentile churches, what you guys need to do, if you really want the foundations here to be correct, you guys need to open up your Bibles and get in there and study those Ten Commandments repeatedly, excessively, over and over and over and over again. You need to have them rounded on your walls, write them on your forehead. He does not say that. It does not happen. Now, hold on, folks. You need, to, you need to stick with me here. The Puritans had a wrong perspective on this. Some of them. I, I'm not going to group them all together. But they would make statements like this. Christ, well rather, Moses, and Moses is representative of the Mosaic law. Moses points us to Christ. We would say, yeah, that's good. Meant to be a schoolmaster. Lead us to Christ, right? That's biblical. We could say that. But what the Puritans would say is that then in turn, Christ points us back to Moses. That is not true. That is not true. The law of God... Now listen. The law of God does not and cannot make us more like Christ. That is not what produces living sacrifices. Turn back to Romans 7. Just back a little bit. You're in 12. Go back five chapters. Look at Romans 7 and verse 4. And let's read it together. I want you to see the mindset of Paul on this. I don't want you to think that I'm making this up. I'm not attacking... Puritan sayings. I'm not attacking the Ten Commandments. The way that I am and the way that I'm speaking just because I have some personal agenda here. Listen to what God says to us in His Word. Romans 7, 4. And I'll tell you this, if some of you will grasp Romans 7, 4, you will then be helped greatly in grasping all of Romans 7. Because this is the issue. This is the issue that's dealt with all the way through. Now watch. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law. Christians, you died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to Him who has been raised from the dead. Now follow these three words in our ESV. In order that... Guess what? You died to the law in order that we may bear fruit for God. I'll tell you this, living sacrifice, that's what that life is. It is a fruit-bearing life in Christ. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. Fruit. That is the Christian's glorifying life. It is fruit bearing. It is righteousness. I am not turning us away from righteousness in the things I'm saying. Paul is not turning us away from righteousness. But he's saying there's a way to get there. And being under the law is not that way. Being under the law is not the way to fruit bearing. Brethren, We die to the law. Not only do we die to trying to keep the law to get to heaven. You you guys follow this. Of course we die to the law when it comes to do my own works merit my way to heaven. Justification. I am declared righteous before God based on the merits of Jesus Christ. Not on my own law keeping. And of course, I die to the law with regards to my acceptance before God. But what I want you to see here is that Paul doesn't just say dying to the law is necessary for your justification. He says dying to the law is also necessary for your sanctification. For your Christ-likeness, for your fruit-bearing, you must die to the law. Okay. 
Brethren, the law is holy. It's holy, the commandment, holy, just, and good. We see that. Paul spells that out in Romans 7. But as good as it is, trying to dutifully fulfill the law of God is not the path to bearing fruit for God. Look at Romans 7.6. And I'm using my words here, and you need to notice them. I talk about dutifully fulfilling the law. Where it's my duty, I'm going to grit it out, I'm going to gut it out. I've got these external commandments, these lists of rules. Look at Romans 7, 6. But now we are released from the law. Notice that. Christian, you are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. So you see what's being said here. The law holds us captive. You've got to escape from it. So that we serve, not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. Now notice what, again what I'm saying here. This is about serving. This isn't just about how you get right with God. This is about serving. How do you serve? Our reasonable service or spiritual worship is living sacrifice. And you don't serve that way under the law. Captive to the law. You serve that way freed from the law. It's very important that we see this. This verse, just as with verse 4, not talking about justification. Speaking about how we serve, how we live, how we bear fruit. And how is that? Not under the old written code. Folks, the old written code is the old mosaic. It's the old mosaic law. It includes the Ten Commandments. People like to separate those things. But I'll tell you what. You go over to 2 Corinthians 3 and you find out that that which is written on stone, that's the Ten Commandments. It's a ministration of death. It's a ministration of condemnation. You've got to be freed from it. Well, here's the thing. We might ask this. Okay, if Paul is telling the Christian he's no longer under the law, not just for justification, but for sanctification as well, then what are we to put in the law's place? I mean, are you saying we should just be unrighteous, unholy? That we should have no regard whatsoever for the commandments of God? Is that what you're saying? God forbid, that is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we do need to live living sacrificial lives. We do need to be in the will of God. We do need our lives consumed with God and His righteousness. Yes, we need to hunger and thirst after righteousness. What I'm telling you is, a list of rules and laws and regulations is not how you get there. Well, how do we get there? Romans 12.2 gives us the answer. What do we put in the place of the law? If it's no longer under law, what would Paul advocate that we put in its place? Romans 12.2 we could find the same answer in all sorts of other places, but Paul's answer in Romans 12.2 is this. In place of the external letter of the law, we put the transforming renewal of the mind of the true Christian. Titus 3.5 calls it renewal of the Holy Spirit. Brethren, you need to hear what I'm saying. Paul is constantly gripped by the reality that the Christian does not live under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. And Paul has great, great confidence in the mind, the renewed mind of the Christian. And you know where his confidence comes from? It comes from his understanding of the massively powerful Work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian. Paul definitely has this idea, this confidence 
Because he's so certain of the working of the Holy Spirit. And external commandments are simply no substitute for the process of mind renewal. And that's, folks, that's at the heart of God's new covenant. Is it not? I'm going to write my law in their heart. We're not advocating lawlessness. We're advocating law that presses out from inside. We become those who are fulfillers of the law. Not the avoiders of law. Not those that despise the law. Not those that despise God's will. But it presses out from within. The Spirit of God is put within. I will give them That Spirit, God says in the New Covenant, I will put My law in their heart. We come into the New Testament. Christ preaches His first great sermon. And what does He say? Blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. Folks, hungering and thirsting has to do with appetites. With desires that well up from inside. It's no longer that I have an external code and I say, man, i got to keep that. We grit our teeth. We strive to do what we don't want to do. Now we have a hunger for God's will. It literally is within us. Brethren, Paul assumes that God transforms us and renews our minds. And I realize there in Romans 12 too, we see the aspect of this thing being a process. It's something that is happening. It's something that we need to be about this transformation, the renewal of the mind. It's something that that is not all perfect in the beginning. And obviously, God still gives us commandments. Obviously, we're still in a place, being in these mortal bodies, that we need these objective standards by which to, to be able to examine ourselves. But look, you get a flavor from the New Testament. I mean, things come at us like this. John, I write to you, listen to this, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. You see, the the feeling you get in the New Testament is that there is such a thing happening within the true child of God, by the Spirit, in the mind, that they know what is right. Listen, if you are hungering and thirsting, after righteousness, you have a sense as to what that is that you hunger and thirst after. You're not hungering and thirsting after something, but you don't know what it is. You do know what it is. Because God has written it in there. God has emblazoned it within you. That's not to say that we're not in a place where we need to be brought in remembrance of things, where we need to have certain aspects of theology more fully explained, that we need a greater understanding and we need to grow in those things. That's not that. But listen, there at the same time, there is an aspect that I think often we can miss. Where the Ten Commandments are just hammered and hammered and hammered. And you get these churches, and it's like just like with the Puritans, they need these extensive volumes to tell all their people exactly how to live. I don't need to be that to you guys. We don't need that. You know what we need? We need the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we need. And that's where the renewed mind comes from. That's how. Listen to this. John again. The anointing that you received from God abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. Well, you look at that. We read over that. Wow, what is that? You, know, you have no need that anybody should teach you. What do you guys do with texts like? Peter writes this. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Now, obviously, this is not to say that we don't need God's Word. This isn't to ignore that God gives us clear commandments in His Word. Of course, all Scripture is profitable for our instruction. Obviously, we don't dismiss or relax even one of the least of God's commandments. Of course, we want to do them. We want to teach them. But brethren, the path to fulfilling the law and being a well-pleasing, living sacrifice to God is a Spirit-endowed anointing, a transformation, a renewing of the mind. Righteousness is the standard. But what I'm talking about is how we get there. And you get there by regeneration, born of the Spirit, 
Having this Spirit of God indwelling you. Look. Think with me here. If this is true, then our greatest dilemma is not that we haven't been teaching through the Ten Commandments in Sunday school, which is so common in so many churches. The greatest dilemma here is not that not more is being said about Exodus 20. Brethren, the greatest dilemma we can experience as a church is if we grieve the Spirit of God. That is the greater. This renewal of the mind, Paul calls somewhere else the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And you grieve or you quench that Spirit. That's where we get into big trouble. In so many of these churches, the emphasis is on law, 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 law. I'll tell you this, the Spirit of God came into this world to exalt Jesus Christ. And as long as the church is focusing on not grieving the Spirit, not resisting the Spirit, glorifying Christ, following His leading, we're on the right track. The Spirit of God works in us. You know these things. You have a sense. It's as though we instinctively, when we're walking in the Spirit, the Spirit of God instinctively through these 10,000 things that you do, when you're in HEB, think about it. You know what it is when things dry up, when the Spirit of God is grieved. You feel the absence of God. You no longer feel the smile. It feels like you've gone cold. You've gone dead. Versus when the Spirit is actively moving in your life. Transformation, brethren. That's what it's all about. But what is transformation? Listen. We need to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. That word transform, i tell you this, it only shows up four times in our New Testaments. And I think this is very interesting. Obviously, one time is in Romans 12 too. Two of the times have to do with Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. Just listen. This is important for you to get. Be not conformed to the world but be transformed. Okay, we look at that and say, okay, well, it sounds like two opposite sides of the puzzle. What's transformation? Transformation must be not conforming to the world. Conforming to the world is not being transformed. They're the opposites. So we can get to the place where we say, well, transformation is just not being conformed to the world. I'll just be a nonconformist. The rest of the world does this. I'm just not going to do that. Folks, of course, Christians ought to be different. But the difference is not just some external avoidance of worldly behaviors. It's not just enough for me to say, well, the world likes to walk by Victoria's Secret in the mall and I just won't do it. I'm just going to gut it out. Listen, people all the time are avoiding all sorts of worldly behaviors and it doesn't mean that there's transformation. Catholics can go live in their monasteries all the time. And yet, you got them breeding pedophiles like crazy. Folks, do, not doing what the world does doesn't make you transformed. There's something deeper. There's something fuller. And twice this word is used to describe Jesus Christ. Listen to them. Matthew 17.2 He was transfigured. At least the door wasn't locked that time. <laughs> he was transfigured before them. Now just listen. What does this transfiguration look like? And his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. I'll give you Mark's account. 9-2. He was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant. Intensely white. And no one on earth could bleach them. Brethren, you got a man. A man who Isaiah described had no form, no majesty that we should look at, no beauty that we should desire him. And suddenly there is beauty, there is glory like the sun shine. This is the same word. This transformation 
is the same word that's used to describe your mind if you're a Christian. You want to know what the mind of the Christian is like? Think sun. Think blazing, dazzling, brilliance, and whiteness. That's the same word. That if you're a true Christian, such things are happening in your mind as are equivalent to that type of transforming. You know what? Scripture says that one day we will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. In other words, we're going to look on the outside like Christ looked right here. But the thing that Scripture tells us is on the inside, we've been changed. We are new creations. What you get is this idea, your mind, if you're a child of God, it is something totally not of this world. It has been recreated and transformed. But let me tell you something else. This word transformation is used one other place. You know where it's used? 2 Corinthians 3.18. Now let me tell you about that text. Because this has everything to do with our being renewed in the mind. Our transformed. We're being transformed from degree by degree. From glory to glory as we behold the Lord. That's what 2 Corinthians 3.18 says. We are being transformed. How do we do it? We do it by gazing on the Lord. Who's it done by? It's done by the Spirit who is the Lord. Now, if you back up a verse, you find that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's what? Liberty or freedom. Here it is, folks. Here it is. If you'll really grasp this. There's freedom. You know what transformation of the mind does? Where the Spirit is. The Spirit brings the transfer. Renewal of the Spirit. Where the Spirit is, there's freedom. This has everything to do with your mind. Why? Because what is freedom? Freedom is when I do what I want to do. Is it not? Isn't freedom the ability to do what I want to do? It certainly is. And you see, where the Spirit of God is, there's freedom. You know what the problem was with that old covenant? You know what the problem is with all those lists of rules and laws? Is if you don't have a heart to do it, it's no good. You can hammer and hammer and hammer. But what Paul says is this, let your mind go back over and over and over and over again to Christ and to all His mercies. Focus on Christ. And the Spirit of God will transform and renew by that Spirit. And there will be freedom you will want to do. That's what the Spirit of God does. The renewed mind is approving the will of God. It's proving it. It's discerning it. And it's approving it. It's desiring that will. His laws, His commandments are not grievous, John tells us. This is the idea. The Spirit of God brings a heart. The Spirit of God brings a hunger. The Spirit of God brings desire. Christian life is nothing without desire. If you walk into this place and you say, I want to be like them. Okay, where's the code? Where's the list? What do I have to do to measure up? Well, we could give you the 10, you know, 10 step checklist. Don't go to the gas station on Sunday. Don't do this. Don't do that. Well, what good is that? Okay, that's how I get in. It's like a club. Got to go through my little... Folks, I am not going to be the Holy Spirit to you folks. And I am not going to be your conscience. If the Word of God dogmatically says it, I will preach it that way. But beyond that, all those 10,000 other things you do in your life, you know what you really need? You don't need Baxter's Christian directory. We don't need to sit down and write out how you respond. What you need is a heart to do right. And what, what John tells us is instinctively, you already know what is right. By and large, what you folks do not need is tons and tons and tons more preaching and teaching. And sometimes a Christian gets to the place where that's all they want to fill their life with. Teaching and preaching. I'm going to be there. Folks, you know what? You want to not grieve the Spirit? Do what you know is right to do. You know. The Christian knows. The problem isn't that you need to know more. That's typically not the problem. The problem is you need to live up to what you know is right. 
We sense it. You know what it is to love your neighbor. And you know what it is to not love your neighbor. There's freedom in the life of the Spirit. There's freedom in the renewed mind. You see, when your mind is able to discern God's will and approve it and love it at every step, I can have those 10,000 decisions I need to make at HEB and all of them are flowing out of a heart that I want to please God. I want to love God. I want to love my neighbor. I care. And all those decisions and all those responses then flow out of that mindset. Renewal of the mind. It's all in a mindset that is created supernaturally, gloriously, dazzlingly by the Spirit of God. And it just, there's freedom. And I'll tell you that, some of you folks in here are not free. You are not free. Because your conscience is hounding you all the time. Oh, you're doing what you want to do, but you're not truly free. Because all the time, your conscience is whispering and you know it's not alright in the depths of your soul. Some of you are not free because even though you've quieted your consciences and you're doing exactly what you want to do and you may be loving doing what you want to do and it feels free to you, but you're really not free. You know why? Because it's no true freedom if you can only do what you want to do today and tomorrow you can't do what you want to do. You break out of prison. You may run down the street. You may feel free at that moment. But with the police dogging your trails, you're not free. And I'll tell you this, there's no freedom in hell. Live it up today, but there's no true freedom because you know hell is dogging your tracks. Some of you are not free. You may claim to be a Christian, but you're truly not free. Because even though you're trying to play the part, you're trying to look like a Christian, inside you know you're just trying to keep the code. You're trying to keep face. You're trying to live up to a certain standard so that others will accept you. But you know deep in your heart, you're doing the things that you really don't want to do. And if your heart could be let loose and just freely do all that it wanted to do, you know you'd be discovered in a second. And you're not free. And some of you are not free and you know you're not free. Sin has you in its grasp, and you know it. You're like the guy in Romans 7. You see the law. You see the standard. You see what should be. You're, you're, it, it, you're dead in the water. You just can't do. You are, you, are, you are in the grips of sin, and you are helplessly in bondage and enslaved. You know it. You're looking for a way out. Let me tell you with all of you, Jesus Christ said the Son makes men free. And if He sets you free, you are free indeed. And you are free from this day and forevermore. And that is true freedom where you do what you want to do. And you will be able to do what you want to do forevermore. And forever and forever. And what you freely want to do is exactly what God says is acceptable. Well-pleasing in His sight. That is true freedom. Where my freedom brings the smile of God, my freedom is never going to be restrained forever and forever. Jesus Christ went to the cross to set men free. There is true freedom there. Church, that's where our freedom is. You are not under the old written code. You're not in that bondage. You've been set free. Life in the Spirit. Your greatest hindrance to walking this Christian life. I'll say it again. It's not when all the teaching and preaching isn't about the Ten Commandments. Your greatest hindrance to this Christian life is if you grieve the Spirit. See, how do you grieve the Spirit? You guys know it! The Spirit of God working inside prompts you. Go talk to that person. Prompts you. It's time to pray. Pray now. 
prompts you, don't watch that on television, prompts you, go do this, go say that. And we say, no, when we resist. And we do it over and we do it over. We resist the Spirit's leading. That'll grieve the Spirit. If you are a true child of God, you are led by the Spirit. You want to grieve the Spirit? You want to quench the Spirit? You just resist. You see, James said it. He kind of sums it up. That if you know the right thing to do and you fail to do it, for him it is sin. You know what's right and you resist the Spirit of God's leading. Let me tell you something. Paul says that the law of God is not given for the just person. It is not. You don't need that as a just person. Who is the law given for? There's a right way to properly use the law. We find out in Scripture that it, it was not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient. Folks, God has written the law upon our hearts. He's given us a spirit. The spirit is real. The spirit is living. The spirit indwells us. The spirit prompts us. The spirit leads us. You know to do what's right. And he that knows to do what's right and does it not, it's sin. And that's where we resist the spirit of God. Church, in all your billions of decisions in your life, a renewed mind, renewal of the Holy Spirit, that's what we need. That's truly what we need. You want that transformation? I'll tell you. Behold the glory of the Lord and you will be transformed degree by degree into that image. You know what? This is my last comment. What we need is not to gaze more and more at the law. We need to gaze more and more at Christ. That's what our New Testaments teach us. That's the path to true holiness, well-pleasing life, sanctification, Christ-likeness. Gaze upon Christ. And in Him you will see the fullness of righteousness. In Him you see the standard. And in Him, this supernatural dynamic is carried out whereby you are more and more fitted with a mind that loves the will of God, loves what's righteous. You find yourself more and more completely a living sacrifice to God. May God help us to know these things, to live these things. Amen. You're dismissed.